This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Corey Johnson. We're here every day bringing the latest news in the world of business and finance. And the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Showdown indeed. AT&T, Time Warner versus the Department of Justice. Craig Moffat joins us right now, senior analyst at Moffat uh, Nathanson. Uh, and, and Craig, always good to talk to you. Um, this merger is being looked at by the government in a very different way than we've seen prior uh, telecom mergers. But we're in a very different world right now. Is that a reflection of this different world, do you think? Well, you know, yes and no. I would say um, in some ways it's not being looked at in all that different a way. You know, one of, the, one of the reactions that a number of people have had to the DOJ's uh, complaint against this transaction is that, in fact, it doesn't seem to take into account how much the world has changed with people like Facebook and, and Google and, uh, and Netflix having sort of really changed the world of the way we consume video. So having said that, then, how do you think regulators should be reviewing this deal? Well, you know, to some extent, I think, um, so look, let's first back up and and review what they have said. The regulators have effectively said um, that that while this is a vertical transaction, not a horizontal transaction, that is to say, um, you're vertically integrating AT&T, you're not taking a new competitor or not taking an existing competitor out of the market. There are still very clear ways that AT&T could use its control of content in a way that is anti-competitive. That is, it could, and, and the DOJ cites two potential risks. The first is because 70% of Time Warner's content is actually sold to AT&T's direct competitors, that AT&T would have a natural incentive to raise the price of that content to its competitors, in effect, force them to have higher costs. Um, the second thing they could do, and this is probably more problematic and, and does, in fact, take at least some um, acknowledgement of how the world is changing, AT&T could withhold content from would-be competitors, like, say, even Amazon or Apple, and thereby keep those competitors from being able to create a business um, that would compete with AT&T's own business, DirecTV or AT&T Wireless. That's the harder one to, to, to sort of figure out. So, in other words, um, the notion is, is that, is that uh, all kinds of companies could be new competitors to AT&T or Verizon, that Apple could do it or Facebook could do it or Amazon could do it, but that these guys would be able to uh, uh, hold back content like CNN. That's exactly right. Well, and, and not so much CNN, right? I, I think I want to – I would argue that we should try to depoliticize this and not pretend um, that, that this has anything at all to do with – the president's distaste for CNN and the coverage of his campaign. Um, there are legitimate antitrust questions here. Now, that doesn't mean that the DOJ will win this case in court. doesn't mean that they won't. Um, but but I don't think it makes sense to politicize this. And I don't mean to. I mean, what, I guess what I'm thinking is that CNN is, is, a, is a, a, a very strong news organization that provides a public service in its business, as news organizations should, and that uh, the idea that that could be um, limited by this merger would seem like it would rise to a discussion in the court. Well, that's a, that's a, that is a separate question, which is, does that create an, a, a First Amendment question? The bigger issue is simply, um, 
that could AT&T take some of Time Warner's content, particularly content that you might deem must-have, like some of the sports content that shows up on TNT, basketball, for example, um, and withhold that from competitors in a way that would be blatantly anti-competitive. Um, that, that's, it, it is a very interesting question, and those issues of the potential risk of foreclosure um, have always been treated differently in the the media and and telecom universe than in other parts of the country in other parts of of the business world. You know, the the the, the simple premise of the theory is that content is not fungible. That is to say, you can't replace. If you're a fan of the Game of Thrones, um, you can't replace that by saying, "Well, it's just as good to watch Stranger Things." Um, they're they both might be good pieces of content, but they are not substitutes for each other. How is this different from Comcast, NBC Universal? And and what did we learn by letting that deal go through, um, you know, in terms of access to content? Well, it's a great question. And in some ways, this looks very similar. The, the, the DOJ points out that that deal was smaller than this deal, um, but I don't think that's really the, the key issue. The biggest issue, frankly, in, in the review of that deal versus the review of this deal is that in that deal, Comcast volunteered to be subject to behavioral remedies, and the FCC, in their review of the transaction, supported the idea of behavioral remedies. And by behavioral remedies, I mean instead of having to change the structure of the deal by divesting assets, which is what the DOJ has asked AT&T to do, in the Comcast case, it was simply a matter of agreeing to a series of rules that, frankly, had been laws in the United States up until 2013, that they would not use the, the, their, their proprietary ownership of, acts, uh, of content mm. in a way that disadvantaged their competitors. It's not that hard to find behavioral remedies, that, uh, that is to say, prohibitions on those anti-competitive behaviors that would make this deal palatable. What, what's so different this time is the, the antitrust chief of the Department of Justice, uh, McIndell Rahim, has said quite clearly he doesn't like the idea of behavioral remedies. He doesn't think they work. They require agencies like the DOJ to become regulators and babysitters in a way that they are not supposed to be. Right, not and, transactional, and, yeah. That's right. And, and, and this is important. And no matter what, those behavioral remedies have a sunset. And the reason that's so important is because, oh, by the way, the behavioral remedies that were applied to Comcast that prevent them from using the NBC content in the same way uh, expire in February. So um, the DOJ is now looking at the Comcast deal and saying, well, even if those behavioral remedies were a completely sufficient solution at the time, um, what do we do in three months when, when they've expired? So in other words, maybe the Comcast didn't work out mm. so great. Great stuff. Craig Moffat, always wow. a pleasure, especially today. Lots to think um, about. Senior analyst at Moffat Nathanson. Live a simple life in a quiet town. Steady as she goes. Steady as she goes. That's exactly what the team over at BMO Global Asset Management says when it comes to the market outlook. John Adams is with us. He's senior investment strategist at BMO Global Asset Management. Roughly $238 billion in assets under management. John joining us on the phone from Chicago. John, uh, welcome back to Bloomberg Radio. Uh, nice to have you here with myself and uh, Corey. Uh, tell me about this steady-as-she-goes thinking. What's it based on? 
Great. Yeah, I appreciate you having me today, and I enjoyed the uh, sound clip of Dee Steady as, as, <laughs> as she goes along there. Uh, so, so, yeah, uh, so our really our base case from our, our global investor forum, our, our annual forum where we talk about themes over the next three to five years that we think will drive markets, uh, we defined our, our base case as really uh, steady as she goes, which is essentially a continuation of what we've seen in markets and economies over the last couple of years here. So, so continuation of steady growth with modest inflationary pressures. Uh, we think the balance sheet unwind will not have a large impact on markets overall, will not disrupt markets uh, excessively, uh, and also the idea of modestly higher interest rates overall. Uh, modestly higher what and when? What do, you, what do, you, do, you, do you run it that tight to figure out exactly what kind of change is going to happen and when? Sure. You know, we're really trying to outline three scenarios from our annual form, our, our base case, our upside, and our downside. And so uh, the highest weight was placed on our base case scenario. Uh, we did outline an upside scenario where we think we could see uh, interest rates moving uh, more quickly higher uh, due to a more uh, due to an inflationary type of surprise. Uh, but we placed a lower probability uh, on that, that upside scenario overall. When you look at uh, the market valuation, let's just take the S&P 500. Right now I'm sure. looking at a PE on the Bloomberg of about 22 almost, mm -hmm. just shy. And that is certainly uh, something that's higher than we've seen uh, in some time. So are you comfortable with that valuation? Do we see um, companies and earnings grow into that valuation? What happens? Sure, sure. Yeah, it's definitely hard to argue that equities are, are cheap with valuations where they are. Our view has been that we're not excessively stretched from a valuation perspective where equities are fair to modestly expensive on a forward-looking uh, PE basis. But we have seen some very nice earnings growth here uh, over the last five quarters especially. And I think very rare at this point in the cycle where you have growth accelerating uh, on a synchronized basis as well as uh, a resurgence in corporate earnings overall eight years into the cycle that you're seeing this, this reacceleration. So we think that really bodes very well for equities, especially over the next one to two years. So earnings getting... keep up with these valuations, in other words? Yeah, that, 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 that's our, our base case overall. We, we've seen some very strong earnings, again, coming through uh, this quarter with earnings coming at about twice the, the number that was expected uh, on a year-over-year -year basis. So we really heard a lot of valuation concerns from clients a year ago at this time, and, and our view is that we are going to see uh, equity earnings come through, and we really have seen that over the last year. Uh, and these earnings look, look generally cleaner than the sort of equity earnings gains that we saw of maybe a year ago that were so uh, inflated with uh, share buybacks and, and the like. Yeah, I think they are cleaner earnings. They're, I would say, more broadly spread. It isn't just earnings and materials. You've also seen uh, a lot of strength in the technology sector. You've seen kind of the more consumer-related sectors uh, also doing well. So I think that's really a function of, of increased business confidence, uh, and increased consumer confidence really reflecting in, number one, more CapEx from, from companies, and number two, more, more spending by individuals. So, okay, so when you look at the market environment, where do you want to be in terms of allocating new uh, assets? 
Sure. Yeah, I would say the, the biggest takeaway from our, our annual investor forum was really we wanted to remain overweight equities relative to core fixed income. I would say we want to retain exposure to broad global equities. So, for example, in, in the U.S., from a multi-asset perspective, we're equally overweight to U.S. equities uh, as well as international equities, uh, and we're underweight core fixed income. Uh, Europe, where's Europe in your portfolio? Well, we're, we're overweight Europe as a function of the overweight to international equities overall. Uh, I, I would say my, my, my multi-asset colleagues around the globe are, are even more bullish uh, at this point with respect to um, European equities. And I think that's largely a function of Europe just being uh, a bit further behind in the economic cycle with room to catch up as far as from a central bank perspective and from an economic growth perspective. Um, yeah, and uh, in terms of just sort of industries, or, uh, do you sort of keep an industry bias across all uh, continents? You know, we don't really have any strong um, sector biases in the portfolios currently. Uh, we have the capability to do that. We've talked a lot about value versus growth, for example, and the, the impact that technologies had uh, driving growth stocks forward. Uh, but we haven't yet taken any, any strong sector views there. All right, we're going to leave it on that note. John Adams, thank you so much. Senior investment strategist at BMO Global Asset Management. Approximately $238 billion in assets under management. Joining Corey and me uh, on the phone from Chicago. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets with Carol Messer and Corey Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. The Supreme Court itself in 2005 had explicitly approved the position we are taking today, which is that broadband should not be treated as a, a Title II utility, that the FCC has the authority to consider it under light-touch uh, regulation. And so uh, the Supreme Court, having spoken a dozen years ago, I'm confident that they'll uh, see the issue the same way these days. That was the Jeep Pie, of course, the FCC Commissioner on with June Grasso right here in Bloomberg Radio about an hour and a half ago. A really interesting conversation and a huge issue here uh, with the notion that net neutrality, as we've known it for the last couple of years, will no longer be around if this goes through. A um, few people know as much about this as Larry Downs, Project Director at Georgetown, uh, joining us, as well as Todd Shields, Bloomberg News reporter uh, who covers the FCC. And, and Todd, let me start with you. What's, what, what exactly is happening here today? Well, the uh, Federal Communications Commission under Republican Chairman uh, Ajit Pai, who we just heard a sound clip from, is going to go ahead and uh, he, uh, Mr. Pai announced a vote December 14 to vacate uh, almost all the Obama-era net neutrality rules, rules put in place by the, the Democratic FCC that preceded this Republican-led panel. So remind us what net neutrality means. Yeah, very broadly. Uh, net neutrality is a concept that uh, I think boiled down, a, a nice way to put it is that Internet service providers need to treat web traffic fairly. Mm -hmm. And under that, there's a bunch of little rules. Now, they're not little. Uh, people consider them to be major, but no blocking, um, no throttling, which is slowing down rules. And one big one was no paid prioritization or so-called fast lanes. You know, you give uh, extra money to the Internet service provider and they move you to the head of the line and your service is superior to your competitors. And that's seen as a deterrent to the, the guy in the garage starting his own company. How could he ever be heard if he was relegated forever to a slow lane and nobody wanted to, he could, could, could wait around to see what he put out on Right. We, we've heard this story before. Those with deep pockets kind of go to the front of the line here. Larry Downs, come on in. You're project director at the Georgetown Center for Business and Public Policy, internet industry analyst and author. Um, how do you see this and where do you see it going? 
Well, we're, we're pushing that uh, big rock back up the hill again. Um, this is uh, probably the, the half-dozenth time in the last 10 years that we've gone back and forth on this. It really boils down to, as it always has, whether or not Congress ever told the FCC to, to, internet, to regulate the Internet, and if so, how. Uh, as I've said all along, this is never going to go away uh, until Congress actually says one way or the other. Larry, let me ask you uh, uh, about that notion that this could have an, an unfair effect on smaller companies, startups, companies we've never heard of that hope to become the next Uber, but they want the same access to the Internet. Yeah, so, I mean, of course, as Todd pointed out, what we're really doing is going back to the state of play as it was between 1996 and 2015. Uh, we didn't really have that problem, uh, at least up until now, partly because the Federal Trade Commission is sort of on the job uh, for anti-competitive practices. Uh, that'll go back to being uh, who's on the job uh, after this uh, order is passed. But, you know, the paid prioritization, it, theoretically, it could be an issue. But again, you should know it's only the part of the network that the ISP controls, so anything before that, all the the middle mile carriers and the originating carriers, uh, they can't do paid prioritization even if they wanted to. Uh, the ISPs can't, and so in some ways, it's not even clear paid prioritization is a business model that has any legs. Todd, what are some of the uh, I don't know dates at this point that we need to kind of be watching as this uh, issue comes up now once again? Well, the, the number one date's pretty close. December 14 is the FCC meeting where this will be voted almost certainly on a three to two Republican to a Democrat vote. And, and then uh, some number of months later, uh, or, or 60, 90 days, I forget exactly what, it'll be published in the Federal Register. Lawyers will start going at it. And maybe by late next year, we have a uh, arguments before a court and, and a decision some months after that. So we, we wait and see how the judges react. Well, what... Uh, Larry, let me ask you. I, mean, I, I can't see why this wouldn't be bad news for Netflix, why it wouldn't raise Netflix's cost of doing business. Because if Netflix is responsible for a huge chunk of the traffic on the Internet, why wouldn't uh, the ISP say, hey, you got to pay your way, your costs are going up? Yeah, well, again, you know, most of the Netflix traffic, it manages itself up until that uh, that sort of last right. mile or that gets to the head end. That's the only way, that the only part that could be prioritized. And as I say, I, I don't know, the, the ICs never have uh, tried to charge them for it. When it was legal up until 2015, will they try to afterwards? And if they do, you know, would that be allowed again under, under FTC anti-competition rules? We'll have to see. But at least so far, you know, the ISPs haven't said they want to do this. But it's a, a very it. different world for Netflix than it was two years ago. It's a much bigger outfit and, and responsible for a lot more of the traffic. I'm sure the ISPs, they want to change this rule so they can make more money, right? Well, in some sense, it's a different world in that Netflix is a much more powerful company, and in some ways, they have much more leverage than they did, and perhaps enough leverage to tell the ISPs, you know, go to hell. If you don't uh, take our traffic the way we sent it to you, uh, you know, we're going to tell our customers to switch ISPs. And, and then to that, is there actual competition at the ISP level? And that, that's a well, fundamental part of this. Yeah, there is, in, and certainly in urban uh, parts of the country, that, there's really little doubt of that. Of course, in the sort of uh, you know middle middle of the road, and certainly in rural areas, there's much less competition. Uh, but you know, there's the, the the speeds are getting better for for wireless communications all the time. It may become very soon a, a, a actual you know intermodal competitor for for wired service, and the competition may become much more fierce. Well, it's certainly something that could have significant uh, implications, um, we'll keep an eye on it. Larry Downs, thank you so much. Project Director at the Georgetown Center for Business and Public Policy, Internet Industry Analyst and Author, joining us on the phone from Berkeley, California, and from the nation's capital, our own Todd Shields, FCC reporter at Bloomberg News. Check out his work at Bloomberg.com and on Twitter at tshields3. I believe you.
We believe Dave Wilson. We believe Dave Wilson has come armed with his chart of the day. And wait, can I just say, we're really trying to help Dave because he is just a hundred away from hitting 11,000 subscribers. So everybody, if you're not subscribing to his chart of the day, sign on now because we want 11,000. Early and often. Get yeah. in there. Yep. Okay, and the email address to do that is <laughs> dwilson at bloomberg.net. That's dwilson at bloomberg.net. It's free. And you not only get today's chart, and this explanation goes with the it. The whole but library. Everything, everything I do I mean, going on. for it. Absolutely. Bargain of the day, of the year perhaps. Yeah, well, you bet. Anyway, turning to today's chart, uh, it's, uh, it's based on shall we say, a skeptical view of markets. Albert Edwards, the Societe Generale, is known for that. And uh, he's been a top-rated strategist in Europe uh, for a number of years, I think, because people turn to him to try and get the sense of, well, what could go wrong with my argument as much as anything? And one thing he's focusing on, which if you think about it, does really represent a shift, is what's happening with sentiment toward U.S. stocks. And the chart focuses on one of the indicators he looks at. It comes out of the monthly survey uh, of the University of Michigan on consumer confidence. And they do uh, a question on how likely it is that shares will go up in the next year or the next 12 months, if you prefer. And... In the last four months, we've seen four of the highest readings in the history of that question, which has been asked now since 2002. So, you know, that's what's got him concerned. We're going to get the next reading tomorrow as part of the University of Michigan's report. Is this a good so, indicator? Well, it's out there. You certainly, okay. uh, and it's, uh, you take a look at it relative to the S&P 500. It hit a peak around the high in 2007. And it doesn't go back all that far, so, you know, you kind of have to look at it from that perspective. It is something, though, that gets people's attention. And uh, like I say, if uh, you haven't seen this already, you know, just send that email to dwilson at bloomberg.net. I can see 11,000 coming your way, Dave Wilson. All right, Bloomberg Stocks columnist Dave Wilson with his chart Maybe of the day. We can use those old Dow 11,000 baseball caps and <laughs> put, the, put that just across out. Dave 11,000. Come on, everybody. Hey, let's talk about uh, the robot that said sell Facebook because it wasn't a great call. It didn't get fired. Hmm, lucky for it. Julie Verhage is a stocks reporter here at Bloomberg News, uh, joining us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. I love this story. Uh, this happened over at uh, Wells Fargo, right? Yeah, an analyst named Ken Senna and his sidekick, Brian Healy, who actually helped create Amazon's Alexa, the digital at-home assistant. This was their brainchild. They decided to ask the question, you know, can you actually replace Ken and his job with a robot? <laughs> Wait a minute. Okay. Corey, First of all, personal like uh, disclosure, <laughs> I'm a huge fan of Ken Senna. I think he's one of the very best analysts on all of Wall Street. <laughs> but what you're telling me is that Ken designed a robot to prove that Ken cannot be replaced. I mean, it, it turned into, he actually did ask the question, like, can you actually replace me? Um, and it turned into this sort of like enhancement type thing. So what His the robot will do. Evercore probably thinks so. Yeah, maybe, maybe. But yeah. Wells Fargo can't, can't do without cancer. No, no. I mean, like, I worked with one of the tech editors out there on this and we went in there. They actually did hook up the robot to Amazon's Alexa. So she does speak. 
Um, the robot's name is Era, and it skims through thousands of articles every single day and picks out what's important. So instead of a replacement, it's sort of turned into this enhancement story. So it helps Ken do his job. Instead of him having to waste his time going through tons of news articles, he can just rely on Era. She can pick out the big things. She writes a paragraph summary, recommends a buy or sell. Is which, she reliable? Yeah, see, this what's is the, the question data on right this? now. Because she wasn't great her call on Facebook. Right. So the problem with that call. Why are we is calling that, her a her, by the way? Oh, so this was also a funny response. They did not that because, because there's wrong. not enough female analysts on Wall Street, so they wanted it to be a her. Oh, so now <laughs> machines are taking our jobs on Wall yeah, Street. I'm just. Right. Uh, machines okay. can break through the glass ceiling, but not actual women. <laughs> exactly. No. Nice. Exactly. All right, continue. Um, so when she downgraded Facebook, that's when it was all the Russian hacking stuff that was coming out in the news. So obviously she sees all this stuff happening and was like, oh my God, Facebook is a cell. We need need to put this writing on her when in reality like analysts like Ken know you know what yeah this is a little hiccup for Facebook but they're going to survive it it's no reason to put a cell writing on Facebook I just want to know that when uh, this robot is accumulating all this information especially in social media and then there's fake news and misinformation mm -hmm. out there isn't that going to make it make a bad call just got about 15 seconds so after a while it shouldn't once it gets more data that's kind of like this whole AI machine learning type thing it only yeah. is as good as the data it has so, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. time will tell. Yes, it will. Watch out, everybody. Um, love this story. Check out more of uh, Julie's story, The Robot Said to Sell Facebook. Uh, just go to Bloomberg.com. And also check her out on Twitter at Julie Verhage. Julie Verhage, docs reporter at Bloomberg News. Changes indeed. What's well, another changes at HP is the drama. HPE shares uh, plummeting in after hours trading. Crawford Del Pratt joins us right now uh, with a look at the company's EVP of uh, IDC Research and just got off the phone with uh, Meg Whitman and her successor. What'd they say, Crawford? Hey, how are you guys? Hi. So, What'd they say? Yeah. Well, look, I mean, <clears throat> if you're Meg, um, this is a time where they're showing uh, revenue growth. Um, it's, I, think, I don't think it's a surprise. Antonio had been named president um, a number of months ago, and I think that you know, there were a lot of rumors of Meg being considered for other roles. And I think that with software having been uh, spin-merged, services having been spin-merged, all those deals being complete, I think that, um, at least from this analyst's perspective, uh, this was an expected move. Um, I think that if you look at the company, there are certainly challenges. There are major challenges in terms of the segments that they participate in, the commodity nature of those segments. But at the same time, there are some things from a strategic standpoint that Meg has put in place from a framework for how they add value and how they add valuable businesses. And I think you are seeing some of the seeds of that bearing fruit as you, as you dig into the businesses and you dig into some of the numbers. Was she done? In other words, was she personally ready to leave? Um, you know, certainly that was never intimated to me. Um, I get the sense that uh, Meg felt that, you know, it was her uh, uh responsibility, if you will. She said this many, many times to kind of return HP to the glory that it had in the past and yeah, that return HP to relevance. And, you know, obviously, I think the jury's going to be out on the first part of the statement. But in terms of position, in terms of taking HP, uh, you know, if you look at the separate companies right now, uh, HPI, which uh, you know also uh, also has reported here and has has performed really really well, um, you know has kind of 
been freed and freed to do some interesting acquisitions and interesting deals. Uh, but was it, what, what was Meg done? I think Meg felt that maybe her work here was done, and, mm-hmm. and she probably is looking for her next chapter. I mean, I, you know, I, I think that's a very favorable way to put this thing, but it looks like what we see is, you know, while there was a little revenue growth, it wasn't actually in the HPE uh, um, uh, sales of hardware, which is really what, you know, they've, they've been able to lease some stuff and make a number here. But this is a much smaller business than it was uh, when it was a, the combined entity. It's a much smaller business than it was when they split it off. And the split off hasn't gone the way that she planned it. The promises made when the split uh, between HP Inc. and HPE happened, those promises didn't take. The direction of the business didn't take. The revenues didn't grow. Uh, the industries that they're in, they're losing market share. Uh, and and uh, you know and they're still taking restructuring charges. My, they took ten million dollars a week in restructuring charges here. They've been taking one-time restructuring charges every year since two thousand one. I mean, this, this I just I, I don't think there's a victory lap here. Yeah, so I, I, I hear you, Corey, but I, I, I do believe that, you know, when you look at the restructuring charges and the historical restructuring charges, a large percentage of those were related to the services business, where it was very difficult to get out of some of the operating areas where they were you know, running the old outsourcing playbook. 16 and years? The EXC deal. Sorry? 16 years? I mean... I, 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 I'm, I'm talking about just the last five years. I understand. Okay, five been, years. Yeah. Uh, fair, fair point. Uh, but even then, I mean, those restructuring charges should abate as the company starts to see growth going forward. If you look at, and again, I, it, this is just a debate on kind of the company. If you look at the, 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 the technologies this company has added, even in the last two years, you look at Aruba. I mean, here's a company growing double digit and meaningfully adding value to the company. You look at Nimble Storage. Nimble Storage is the reason that their storage group grew. Um, and if you look at the, the core server business, the core server business grew if you take out of the fact that the large service providers, namely Microsoft, a historical customer, has now moved to the ODMs and is buying directly from the ODMs. So look, they're trying hard to pivot this company in what is some really, really tumultuous water. And I would say, if you know, being able to deliver some revenue growth um, in the kind of environment they're participating in, yeah, again, you know, we, we can put Meg's uh, tenure aside for a second. They're executing a lot better as a smaller company than they were as a large company, I would say, even a year ago. Getting smaller by the day. <laughs> <laughs> but is it enough, I guess? I, so what do they have to do now? Yeah, so the playbook that they're running, which I think makes um, the most sense for this company, is to identify segments of the enterprise in terms of services, Mm -hmm. as well as core infrastructure, where they can see outsized margins, add those to the portfolio, move those through the HP channel, which, by the way, 70% of their revenue comes through the channel. No other company is quite like that on the planet, um, and allow those channel partners to create value. And that playbook has run pretty well with some of the acquisitions that they've done in the last two years. I mean, it really, actually, you can go back six or seven years to things like 3PAR. They're not even relevant in storage without buying 3PAR. And if you look at the all-flash array business, you know, that's now been a consistent growth engine for the company. So um, what they do is they run that playbook. And at the same time, they have to, and again, this is what uh, gets lost in the, in the discussion. They're still in the services business. They're just in the technology services business. It's not a particularly sexy part of the services business. It's not yeah. the big business consulting services, but it's 30% Crawford of Del their Pratt. revenue. Crawford Del Pratt, IDC Research. This is Bloomberg. Move around. Motion creates emotion. I feel the earth move under my feet. 
You move like they do. I've never seen anyone move that fast. All right, people, let's move like we've got a purpose. Something's called Movers and Shakers. They cost a little more, but that name cracked me up. Bloomberg Markets, Movers and Shakers, with Carol Masser and Corey Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. It is time for your Movers and Shakers, winners and losers, on this uh, Tuesday afternoon. Carol Master along with Corey Johnson. Let's kick it off, as I like to do, uh, with your winners and losers in the S&P 500, the big caps. 358 names in the S&P 500 higher today, 143 lower, five unchanged. Let's talk a little bit about Under Armour, because uh, that is your number three decliner as the race car goes by Corey Johnson. Number three decliner in the s Sorry, I just put my head to park my motorcycle during <laughs> the break. Tell. I took a little spin in my Harley. Uh, shares of Under Armour. Uh, number three decliner, down about 5.9% in today's session. The news that we had out on Under Armour, uh, confirming that their head of footwear has left the company. Uh, they've got somebody new in that place, uh, putting in that place. Um, Ryan Drew, previously the general manager of Under Armour's basketball division, will succeed uh, Peter Rupi, I think it is, or Forgive me if I have a mispronunciation. Um, but nonetheless, Under Armour, we've seen show up an awful lot, I would say, uh, quarter of the last year uh, among the most actives and also among some of the biggest movers. And uh, today, a big decliner. Again, down about uh, 6%. Let me just take a quick check. I was noticing how much I saw it on Saturday when I was watching college football. And I saw a lot of Under Armour uh, uh, sponsored schools that they've really stepped up their costs yeah. sponsoring schools in the ways that Nike, Adidas, and, and the like have in the past. When you lose your sneaker guy, as a sneaker company, it ain't good. Stock is down 55% so far this year. What do you got? 4% down, or 3.8% to be exact, into it. Into it shares down today after the company uh, uh, reports it. So they reported a quarter that looks good, right? They report a quarter, they show revenue growth, uh, uh, substantial revenue growth of. Uh, of uh, 14% on a year-over-year basis for their fiscal first quarter. Uh, but they left their guidance the same. So when you beat your numbers, but you leave your guidance the same, it says, actually, it looks like the end of the year is not going to be better. Because if you did a little better in the first quarter, you, at the very least, the numbers should go up a little, if not a lot. Under Armour kept their guidance, or I'm sorry, Under Armour, uh, Intuit kept their guidance uh, exactly where it was, uh, suggesting the second half could be tough. Uh, their small business unit did well last year with the launch of TurboTax Self-Employed, a new product line, but uh, uh, that that launch last year maybe uh, hurting results next year. So the result or this current uh, calendar year, current as our fiscal year, that means the stock's down about four percent today on a day when the market was up pretty good. Check out this one down thirty percent today, down more than twenty three dollars. Go ahead, it's just tis the season. Speaking of the agency and football <laughs> games, go ahead because maybe you no. want to do some jewelry shopping this holiday season. Could help out Signet Jewelers. Hammered, Did you just get hot in here? Uh, open the window. Hammered last quarter by hurricanes and missteps uh, related to the outsourcing of its credit business. Stock in a tailspin, as I mentioned, down uh, more than uh, 30%. Owner of the K Zales and Jared Chains plunging the most since 1992. Third quarter comparable sales, Corey falling more than analysts expected. Uh, declines extending across most divisions. And the company's CEO saying the company will feel the effects this quarter, too. Holiday shopping quarter, oh no, stock is now down 44% this year. All right, so let's have some good news. Okay, that would be nice. This one won't scare you. No shopping at Medtronic for you or 
It's a jewelry store from here, right? Uh, Medtronic uh, posting uh, its biggest intraday gain in four years, stock up uh, 4.8% on the day. The world's biggest medical technology company uh, has uh, reported some pretty strong results and said things are better. The problems that they've had in the past are going to be are gone, uh, and that their their quarterly earnings uh, were also uh, strong enough to help the stock get a boost. Uh, and it was one of the biggest gainers uh, in the S and P 500 today. Medtronic shares up 4.8%. Uh, okay, and I just want to mention Hewlett Packard Enterprises crossing the Bloomberg terminal, as we say, and uh, Meg Whitman to uh, look like she's leaving the company, Antonio Neri to succeed Meg Whitman. As for the fourth quarter net revenue, uh, $7.66 billion, a little bit light with the forecasts that were out there in comparison, and their fourth quarter adjusted EPS, $0.31 cents a share. That is a beat of $0.03. Cents. We're going to break down uh, those numbers in just a moment. Uh, let's get to the volatility index report, and the VIX in today's session, as we saw more records on Wall Street, the VIX down 9%, closing below 10 at 9.70. This is Bloomberg Radio. All right, Dave, you're up. Uh, hi, uh, my name is Dave. Wilson, where are you? Wilson! Just what do you think you're doing, Dave? We're going for the price on Wilson. Open up the door, it's Dave. Who? Dave! Hey, Mr. Wilson! Dave Wilson joins us right now with his stock of the day. That's right, Corey. And before we get there, we should just kind of touch on the idea that when a company's stock price surges after quarterly results, shares of other companies in the same industry often follow suit. The gains are based on the assumption that their reports will also bring pleasant surprises. It doesn't always work out that way, as today's stock of the day, DSW, shows. The retailer's name stands for Red Designer Shoe Warehouse, and DSW is also its ticker symbol. On Friday, DSW shares climbed 9.7% after a well-received report from Shoe Carnival. They gained another 1.7% yesterday. Today, the company released fiscal third quarter results and they didn't justify all the optimism. DSW's adjusted earnings, trail analyst average estimate in the Bloomberg survey by more than 16.5%. That was the widest margin in almost nine years. Revenue also came up short of projections, largely because of an unexpected decline in sales at stores open more than a year, otherwise known as same-store sales. And the company cut its full-year profit forecast. Put that all together... DSW shares ended up with their biggest loss in almost three and a half years. They dropped 13 and a quarter percent, more than enough to offset those gains in the previous two days. Right. Now the stock is down about 13.7 percent for the year. So that has certainly uh, dragged the overall moves uh, for 2017. All right, Dave, thank you. Dave Wilson, his stock of the day, DSW. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. And follow us on Twitter. She's at Carol Masser, and I'm at Corey TV.